How's it going, HDC? Good to get to be with you here tonight. Uh, my name's Jackson, and uh, it's my privilege to get to be here with you as we wrap up our Mending Fences series. Uh, I work with our creative team, uh, and I also work with our young adults. So it's fun to get to be here uh, with you guys tonight. And again, we're wrapping up this series that I hope has been a benefit to you. I hope it's been encouraging to you and your faith. Um, the, the, this, the whole point of the series is it's this big response to a big problem that we're facing, not as High Desert Church, but as the church, as we are watching people leave their faith at an alarming rate, just walk away completely. And so I, I love the heart of this series, which is to respond and say, we've got to do something about it. We can't just act like it's not happening. And so we've kind of been looking at, at two different angles in this series. One is how we can protect our own faith. Because at the end of the day, while everything might be great in your faith right now as is, um, man, you're no better than people who have walked away from their faith. So what can I do? What can you do to fortify our faith? But then on the other side, we've been looking, man, how can we also pursue those people who have strayed from their faith? What are things that we could do as a church, as individuals who love Jesus, who, who follow a Messiah who chases after strays? How could we take that same posture with those people in our life? So through it, uh, we've had the privilege of having uh, Rick come out, uh, Rick Langer. He, he taught on maybe this winsome pursuit of people who have strayed their faith, how to be winsome in the way that we pursue people. Uh, but then we've also looked at uh, really the four main reasons why actual real life livestock stray, which is their fear, uh, its influence, curiosity. Uh, and then this weekend, we'll wrap this up with hunger. Hunger is that last reason why people stray, uh, why livestock stray. Uh, but also why people stray from their faith. Uh, and before we dive into it, I just want to encourage you that if this series has been an encouragement to you, that you realize, man, there's some other people out there who have doubts in their faith. I'm not the only one. Or you've realized, man, there are a lot of godly parents that their kids have just walked away from their faith. Um, and, and that maybe though it's not an encouraging thing to say, it's like, man, we're not the only ones. Um, we have two great growth tracks that are coming up tomorrow from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. that'll be here at the Victorville campus. One is on doubt and the other is how to not lose your faith when your kids lose theirs. So I would just encourage you, if this series has been an encouragement to you, we're winding it down, but that'll be one great uh, resource for you to lean into happening this weekend. But as we dive into hunger, uh, I couldn't think about uh, a random uh, Father's Day in high school, okay? That was what hunger brought me back to. Uh, we would go up uh, as a family to Oregon uh, every single, uh, like every other summer, all growing up uh, since we had moved to the desert because we had a bunch of people up there that were just uh, like family to us. And so we would make a habit of going to visit them every other summer. And this one uh, year in high school that it fell on that summer for us to go up to Oregon, it just so happened that Father's Day was while we were on the way back, uh, coming back from that trip. So no father wants to spend Father's Day on a road trip in a van with four kids, just as kind of a recipe for disaster. So we decided to stop in San Francisco uh, for Father's Day, okay? So it was kind of like free range for my dad. He got to pick whatever we were gonna do that day in San Francisco. And uh, my dad, his, his grand plan was this, was that we were gonna rent a bunch of bikes for our whole family and we were gonna bike across the Golden Gate Bridge. 
which I mean, to you in the audience, you might be like, that sounds awesome. Like what a great way to spend a Father's Day. Uh, and I would get why you would think that, but it would be because you don't know my family super well. Um, the, the four of us kids are like horrible bikers, just some of the weakest bikers in the world. Um, it is not a, a skill set of ours. It's not a strength. My sisters had just learned how to bike the summer before. And I regretfully say that I learned a few weeks after them, okay? But I'm gonna blame that 100% on parenting. Who doesn't teach their kid how to ride a bike until their freshman year of high school? Like, how, I was gonna get bullied the whole time. Like, what is that? So all of us just a year prior had learned how to bike. We're still baby bikers, okay? And now you wanna put us up on a bridge in a narrow pathway and I will spare you all of the near-death experiences from that day, okay? Those are for another illustration, another time. Uh, but we set out, we go and rent our bikes at like 9, 10 a.m. And we set out and this is just taking forever, okay? So I think the, the normal course that's supposed to take somebody who's good at biking is supposed to be, you know, a nice maybe three or four hour thing. This took all day long. There were stops, there were tears, there was okay, we're too far now to turn back. Like, what do we do next? It was terrible. At the halfway point, we decided to hop on a ferry and head back, okay? And so we had left at like 9, 10. By the time we return our bikes and we like get to go find some food, it was like 3 or 4 p.m., we were starving, okay? Nobody had eaten lunch in that in-between time. Everybody's starving, hungry. We find the nearest In-N-Out that we can, okay? So we rush over to that In-N-Out and all of us kids are just angry at this point. Um, so Father's Day has taken a turn for the worst. And uh, my normal order at In-N-Out is, you know, I like to get a double-double with uh, no ketchup, no tomato. Okay, that's my, that's my order, okay? Um, but I decided to change it up because I was starving from biking all day without eating. And I thought, you know what? Today seems like a good day for a four by four. So I said, let's do it. Let's double it up. Let's double my double and let's go for a four by four. And so I ordered the four by four and I kid you not, the best, still to this day, the best burger I've ever had, okay? The all-time greatest burger experience. It almost made like almost dying on the Golden Gate Bridge worth it. Okay. And it got me thinking like, maybe I've just been missing out this whole time. Like maybe four by fours are just like the way to go. And so the next time I went to In-N-Out on just a regular day, I ordered myself a four by four and man, I was so sick to my stomach. Like I was, it was so bad. I was like, clearly this is not the path for me anymore. And, and I bring this all up because we've all had this experience where you eat some food when you are so, so hungry and it is just the best thing you've ever eaten. And it's not because it's the best thing you've ever eaten. It's because you're not in a rational headspace when you're hungry, right? What does is, what is, what is Snickers say? You're not who? You when you're hungry, right? Like that's the, that's the whole slogan because we're not in a space that's thinking critically. We're not in a space that's thinking rationally when we're hungry. And that's kind of the whole danger about this hunger that pulls us away because you're not thinking rationally. And I think one of the first good questions for us to ask when we're talking about hunger is why would we be hungry if we're following the good shepherd? Doesn't sound like a very good shepherd to me if we're feeling hungry. 
And I would say, that's true. That doesn't sound like a good shepherd. But I think the reason that you're actually feeling hungry for something else might be for two really good reasons. One is you're not listening to him. If you don't listen to the good shepherd, of course you're gonna get hungry because you're not eating the stuff he's telling you to eat. And so of course you're gonna be like, I'm starving for something in my life. Well, it's because you're not listening to the good shepherd. The other reason might be because you have an unmet expectation. And can I just say this maybe to help you out in your faith? Um, Jesus does not cater to your expectations. He gives you what's good for you, not what you want. And those aren't always the same thing. Many of us know that a lot of the things that we want aren't normally super beneficial for us. Because he's the good shepherd, he gives you what's good for you. Not just anything and everything that you want, just like a good parent does, right? There are good no's in parenting. And just the same way, the shepherd says no to some things that you and I might wanna chase after. So those are probably two reasons why you might start to be feeling hungry. And when that happens, uh, man, it is cause for concern. It's the same concern that, that Paul has for this church in Colossae. That's where we're gonna be today is in Colossians. It's in the New Testament. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And his whole reason for writing this letter uh, is because he is concerned for a hunger, for some appetite growing in this Colossian church towards kind of two different angles. There's these two outside pressures facing the church in Colossae. And Paul is worried that they might be developing some sense of an appetite for both of these things. One is the pressure of this group called the Judaizers. These are people who are Jewish who are saying, Jesus is awesome. Like we think this whole idea of the gospel, good idea. Just don't forget that the Jewish customs are still needed, which those things would be things like circumcision and kosher law. Like don't forget about those things because you need those as well as Jesus. And so there is maybe a hunger beginning to grow in this church in Colossae towards this teaching that the Judaizers are offering, which says Jesus is good. You just got to mix a little extra in there. And then there's another group in Colossae who is encouraging these Christians saying, hey, you know, uh, Jesus, he's not God. He's actually just an angel. And there's a whole bunch of angels that serve as these kind of go-betweens between us and God. And so here's the beautiful thing. If you worship the go-betweens, they'll bring you closer to God and they'll give you special insight and revelation and they'll, they'll teach you these things and you'll actually depart a little bit more from your physical state and you'll embrace, man, this spiritual reality. You'll find freedom in it. And so that's the encouragement of these people encouraging angel worship. So to simplify it, you've got one group who is saying, mix a little bit in with the gospel. And you've got another group who is saying, Jesus is good, but he's just one of many paths to get to God. And so Paul is getting concerned that they would grow an appetite towards either of these things. And this is his concern. You can see this in chapter two, verse eight. This is uh, really kind of the, the, antith or the whole point of his concern. He says this, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. That's a, that's a complicated verse with a lot of big words in it. But what Paul's concern is, is that your dependence would shift from anything other than Christ. 
that what you would look for to satisfy that hunger would be anything other than Jesus. Because what Paul will build out in this letter is that is categorically a denial of the gospel. It is a denial of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so it is not a route you wanna go. So here's kind of how this message will structure out. We'll look at, the, at kind of Paul's response to these two outside pressures, these two things that the church in Colossae is getting some hunger for. We'll look at his response to them and, and kind of look at what the problem is. And then we'll look at uh, Paul's kind of couple of solutions for us to cling on to. Okay, so here's, here's what he says about the Judaizers. This is what he says if you continue in chapter two, just in verse nine, he says this. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You see, Paul's big thing that he's trying to draw their attention to is that it is in Christ that they have been brought to fullness. It is in Christ that they have been brought to fullness. Because here's the thing with um, false teaching. Here's the thing with this hunger in our faith to go after it. The thing that might draw you towards it is it's always rooted in a kind of this lack of confidence that you have about something that you're just not super sure that Jesus can supply that thing for you. And then B, just kind of this like secret information this like special sauce that nobody's ever told you about. Those are kind of the, the two things that mix together to make good false teaching because if it was clearly false and it had no appeal to you, then it would be pretty bad false teaching. It has to kind of like draw you in a little bit and say, I want some of that. The reason, why would this church in Colossae want some of what the Judaizers have to offer? Because it, it's not a good path. It doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound like a good time. They're saying, man, you gotta be circumcised and you can't eat certain things. Like, doesn't sound like something that immediately you'd be like, ooh, 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 me, sign me up for, right? Like, so what's the draw for this church in Colossae? Well, these are the Jews. These are the special people of God. Like, and they're saying Jesus is great, but don't forget the thing that makes us special is Jews, which is all of this stuff that we do. And you've got to come over to our side. You've got to kind of adopt these things because that's what makes God happy. And that's the special people of God saying this is what makes God happy. What, what, what the church in Colossae is drawn towards, what they're going to want is they're going to want the approval of Jewish leaders. They're gonna want their approval to say like, you guys are on the right track because that's the special people of God. They want them to like them and feel like they have that extra affirmation. I'm headed down the right path. That's what kind of pulls them in. You can see this in your notes. 
that a hunger for approval is rooted in a lack of confidence about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. A hunger for approval is rooted in a lack of confidence about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. You and I, we don't, we don't have Judaizers today who are saying, hey, you should come test out this special, special set of customs that made us the unique people of God. But man, the, the, the pressure to, to garner the approval of people has not gone away at all. We're living in an era right now where you could, you could go find any church that will approve things that are sinful, that, man, are, are a sinful ideology. You, you can find this wherever you wanna go. You can find people who are saying, man, it's all good here, love is love, right? And it's not saying, it's not saying that Jesus isn't, the gospel's just out of the equation. It's like, no, 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 Jesus is good, but also let's mix in the best teaching of the day. What are, what's the best stuff that culture has to say? Because let's mix a little bit of that in there too because people are gonna like us. And our message will be more appealing. We'll go get more people if we mix in all of the best ideas of today. And this is happening at like a rampant level today. It is everywhere. And so no wonder we can find that fulfillment for approval anywhere we want, in any church we want, because man, there's all of these opportunities to mix a little bit extra into the gospel. That lacks a confidence that what Jesus has done for you is enough. If you still want the approval of other people, if you still want the thumbs up from the world, then you have missed what the gospel is all about. Look at this, one of, one of the greatest lines that Paul has written. Go back to, to verse 13 here in chapter two. It was when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. It was when you had nothing good going for you. You had done nothing special to earn God's attention, to earn his favor, to earn his approval. When you were dead and had nothing good, when you were at your worst, it was at that point that who? God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, every single one having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, where we stood condemned. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus has secured the only approval that has ever or will ever matter for you, the approval of God through his sacrifice justification, the fact that because of what Jesus has done for you, you stand right before God. Not because of anything special you've done, not because of anything extra you've mixed in, nothing on your, that you have done, but only because of the blood of Jesus you stand right before God. And when you are confident that you are right before God, who else's approval matters? 
You have the approval of almighty God as one of his kids. See, I think that hunger, that desire, that wanting other people to like us and think well of us, it's because maybe we miss that Jesus is enough. That what Jesus has done for you is enough. And if everybody in this room hated you, but what Jesus had done for you still stood, that's enough. That's enough. You don't need the approval of anybody else. And as long as you kind of have some question marks as to whether Jesus's approval that he's secured for you is enough, then you will always kind of have this proclivity to wanna lean in a little bit to find the approval of other people. So Paul says, man, you start mixing stuff into the gospel, you have denied it because the only way that you will be right is not because of something that you can do, but it is exclusively through what Jesus has done for you. That's his first encouragement against the Judaizers. And I also wanna say too, as we've been pointing out a bunch of different resources throughout uh, this series, I, I wanna point your attention, we'll post it on our, our resources page on our website this week, um, but there's a, a great book and podcast, both by Alyssa Childers. Her book is called Another Gospel? Question mark. And um, just a great book about uh, how she kind of began to fall down this path and her story of coming back from seeking the approval of the world, kind of mixing the best teachings of culture in with the gospel and how she found her way back and all of the inconsistencies that she saw there. So she has a great podcast where she talks about it ongoing for those of us who are a bit more auditory in our learning, but also a great book on that as well. So I wanna point your attention to those things if you're looking for further resources on this. The next group that he takes on uh, is he takes on this uh, group of angel worshipers. Uh, this is what he says, continuing just in chapter two from where we were in verse 15, he says this, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen, right, those revelations. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, check this, this is why it's such good false teaching, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining the sensual indulgence. 
Paul evaluating kind of the argument or, or the thing that is being offered by these angel worshipers. He, said, he sees what, what the draw is. The draw is something that, that you and I fall for all the time in our faith. It's this feeling of not being totally satisfied. There is a lack of satisfaction that's being preyed upon by these angel worshipers as they recognize that, man, when we start going around and saying, we have secret revelations, we've seen stuff that you've never seen. Man, we've experienced a higher level of knowledge through these intermediaries. They've hooked us up and now we're actually closer to God than you ever were. Man, that teaching, if you've been around church long enough, if you've bumped around in different circles, you've heard it. And it, it pulls at you because you're like, what do they know that I don't know? And, and I think here's the reason why it pulls for us is that it's kind of two sides of a coin. There's some of us that we love that side of teaching that would say, man, you can have your cake and eat it too. We like the permission to be able to kind of have Jesus, but have our sin as well. And man, he doesn't care that much about what you do over here or how you engage with this. Like as long as you hold to him, you can have this as well in the other hand. And so there's that side of the teaching, which is like, oh, how satisfying would that be that I get to have Jesus and I get to have my sin of choice as well. I can, I can do both. He doesn't care that much. That's great. Then there's the other side of the coin for those of us that, man, we've just been white knuckling. Like you have been trying so hard to see change in your life and you try as you might, you just keep coming back to the same junk that you said last time you were gonna leave and here you are back at it again and you have just been white knuckling your way through your faith, hoping that something would change. And because things haven't changed the way that you thought they were going to, you hear this teaching that somebody's got some special information and you think maybe that's what I've been missing. Maybe that's why things haven't changed in my life the way I thought that they were going to. This teaching is everywhere for us today. This hunger in our faith, it's rooted in that lack of confidence. This is what I've got for you in your notes. That this hunger for satisfaction, whether to have our cake and eat it too, or man, to see the change that we've been trying to see for so long, this hunger for satisfaction is rooted in a lack of confidence about the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. About the effectiveness. If, if in the first point, we looked at the sufficiency of, of Christ's sacrifice, that is to say, is Christ's sacrifice enough? To question its effectiveness is to say, did it work? And I think we have this question, like this is a very real question for us in our faith. We look at our desires and we say, I still want the same stuff as I wanted before. Did it really work? Or was this all a sham? I, I, I've been trying to like white knuckle my way through change in my faith, but I, I still keep going back to the stuff that I, I said I don't wanna go back to anymore. Did any of this work? And that's where, man, that special teaching, that secret information comes in and it stirs up that hunger and that lack of confidence that you have about whether or not Christ's sacrifice worked for you. And can I just say, 
You're gonna see it in my, my last point here that, that Paul would be very clear that Christ is enough. He's enough and his sacrifice works. And for those of us who feel that insecurity, man, I hope to encourage you tonight that transformation is still on the table in your life. That it is a very real reality that the gospel offers. It's not all just future forward hope. Perfection is off the table. That's coming in eternity. But transformation is a very real thing on the table through what Jesus has done for you. And so that fear, that sense of things haven't changed, I think it's because maybe we haven't embraced the new paradigm of the gospel. But we'll talk about that in a second. Paul's concern is that if you mix stuff into the gospel, man, you're gonna deny it completely. And so you need to trust that Jesus is enough, nothing extra, no Jesus plus. It's just Jesus and the gospel. And then his other concern is, man, if you, if you go looking for that satisfaction anywhere else but Christ, you're gonna be left empty. And you will also in turn deny the gospel because satisfaction that lasts, the satisfaction that you're looking for, it can only be found in Christ. So here's kind of Paul's two cures and they'll play to both how we pursue uh, people who have left their faith, but also how we protect our own. His first cure comes a chapter before the one we've been looking at. It's in chapter one. This is what he says in chapter one, verse 15. He says this, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You can fill this out in your notes. We protect our faith with a high view of Christ. We protect our faith with a high view of Christ. Paul really masterfully does something here in this opening chapter of his letter. What he's gonna do is he's gonna take uh, three things that historically the Jews would have reserved to be exclusively things that they would attribute to Yahweh. And I have those there for you in your notes. It's that he was creator and nobody else was creator. It's that he was king and nobody else was king. And it's that he was rescuer and nobody else was rescuer. See, he was king because he was creator. If he made it, he gets to rule over all of it. But then God uniquely rescues the people of Israel in the act of the Exodus. And that sets up this unique relationship between them and God. And so that was kind of the three things that were reserved only for Yahweh, nobody else. What Paul does is in building this out, he attributes all three of those things to Jesus. He has created all things, so he rules over all things. And then through his sacrifice on the cross, he has rescued us. You see those questions that you and I have about is Christ's sacrifice enough? 
for me? Do I need to add in extra? Or did it work because I'm not seeing the change that I wish I had seen in my life yet? Those questions, man, they become pretty resolved when you have a high, high view of who Jesus is. If Jesus is God, and he is creator, and he is king, then his rescue is enough and it works because he is creator and he is king and he is the only one who can rescue the likes of you and me. When we hold him in that high esteem, he's not just a dude, he doesn't just have good teaching, he is God in a bod. He is 100% man, 100% God, and he has died for you and me, so his rescue is sufficient, and it works. When we hold this high view of Jesus, it protects our faith, because you're not gonna go looking to satisfy that hunger anywhere else. It's not Snickers that satisfies, it's Jesus, right? You're not gonna go looking to fill or meet that hunger anywhere other than Jesus if you really believe that he created you and he rules over everything and he has rescued you so as to set up a unique relationship with us, the church. What a beautiful thing that he has done for us. Next, the other cure that Paul gives is in chapter three. We're gonna get to that in a second. But I I wanna point your attention to a a couple of things in the notes that I think will help us understand what Paul's building to here in chapter three. The first one is you've got a a circle there in your notes uh, that, that says what the world says, what the world says about you. And I, I, I think we see this play out uh, a lot in just our normal lives even, right? If what you do reinforces who you are and then who you are reinforces what you belong to and what you belong to then again reinforces what you do. So this is kind of how this plays out in normal settings. You meet somebody for the first time, what's kind of the first thing that happens in that interaction? Like, hey, what do you do, right? Because if I know what you do, then I know what you belong to. I know who you are and I know the greater group that you belong to, right? So when I kind of have that context on you, all I have to ask is what you do because that helps me understand who you are. And when I understand who you are, I kind of understand the bigger group that you belong to. And this system, man, it works just fine until you start doing stupid stuff. And then when you start doing sinful stuff and that's what you do, man, who are you now? And man, when, when you just feel so dirty, rotten, and guilty, what do you belong to? See, this kind of spiral of reinforcement from the world in our patterns of sin, it kind of confirms for us this sense of, man, I am worthless. I'm not worth anybody's time, and I don't belong to anybody, because who could love me? Who could want me? That's kind of the process of where the world leaves us. And what I have seen happen a lot for people who put their faith in Jesus is they never shift out of this paradigm after they put their faith in Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus and they say, great, I love the gospel. Um, But now I've got to get my behavior in line to confirm who I am to reinforce who I am in the gospel. I've got to get all my behavior. I've got to kind of clean up and then that'll tell me that's who I am. 
And then who I am will then remind me that I'm God's kid. But the problem is, is that we have such a a, a hard time getting our behavior in order. We just end up in the same spiral that the world had us in in the first place, where we keep coming back to all that sinful stuff and saying, I guess maybe it just didn't work or maybe it wasn't enough. And I think the reason that we ask that question is because that paradigm of the world has never been switched out for the paradigm of the gospel. When Sky and I moved into our, our house that we're in uh, a few years back, we had, uh, we're in Spring Valley Lake, so a pretty like, small backyard. Uh, there were 32 trees in our backyard and side yard. So I don't know what was going on. There was some sort of tree junkie that was there before us. Um, it was a problem though. So it made a, a, you know, whatever size backyard feel real tiny because there were trees coming at the house. It was a problem. So like within a few months of moving into this house, we have somebody come in and just cut down all the trees. We're like, we need to start over. I know some, maybe, maybe you were the tree junkie. Okay, so I'm sorry if that hurts you. We had somebody come in and, and cut down all the trees though. We were like, this isn't gonna work. Uh, And then the craziest thing happened a year later. I had 32 bushes in my backyard. It was, I was like, where did these come from? And they just started growing and popping up. And now all of a sudden I had all these bushes that I have to deal with. And I was like, I just cut you down. And you see, I think that's what happens when you don't switch out the paradigm of the world for the paradigm of the gospel is you just kind of keep trying to get the surface clean. You keep cutting things down in your life and saying enough of this, enough of that. But you never deal with the roots. You never get to the heart of the problem. And so that is why your life lacks the transformation that you would hope to see. A transformation of your desires, a transformation of your behaviors. Man, those things are just gonna keep popping up if you don't deal with the root. So look at what Paul says, or first look at this paradigm of the gospel and I want you to kind of read it side by side as we look at what Paul says in chapter three. This paradigm of the gospel starts with whose you are because this is what Jesus has secured for you in the gospel. If you put your faith in Jesus, nothing can change the fact that you belong to God. You're his now. No matter how dirty, how rotten, how gross you feel, you are his. Not because of the cool stuff you've done, but exclusively because of what Jesus has done for you. He has secured forever and ever and ever, amen, that you are God's. That cannot be taken from you. And if that is the case, then that changes who you are. You're not the worthless piece of junk that you thought you were. If you belong to God, then now that reinforces that you are as uncomfortable as it is to say, holy and righteous and beloved. And if you're holy and righteous and beloved, then you live different. And when you start to live different, it reminds you all over again that you belong to the king. So watch as we read through chapter three how this pops off the page. This is what he says. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind. This is right after chapter two, right after he's saying, don't settle for the earthly things. Don't settle for the earthly ways of trying to generate change and satisfaction in your life. Look above, look up and set your mind where, where you belong, 
where you, where that's, the, that's who you belong to. Set your mind above. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden in God. That's who you are. It's hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Who you are. And watch how who you are now dumps right into what you do. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Look at this. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but, you, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So, so look at this. He, he goes through all these behaviors, things that you're gonna stop doing because he's reminded us of who you belong to, of, of who you are now because of that. And then now we get to all of these things that you're gonna do, but that reinforces this other reality, right? That, that you are a new creation. That's who you belong to, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. That's, that's whose you are. You're being renewed. So now we get this reinforcement of whose you are all over again. And then check this, he gets to identity. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That's who you are. And then who you are dumps again into behaviors. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Look at how those actions, those lists that might've formerly freaked you out, the things that you need to stop doing and the things that you need to start doing. Look at where they start. The power for transformation in the gospel starts with who you belong to and who that makes you. And now that's where the power is. As I come to believe that I really am who God says I am. If I'm holy, if I'm righteous, if I'm beloved, if, if God would shed his own blood for me, that's how valuable I am, then what I do with my body matters. Then how I live, how I treat other people matters. And all of a sudden, that power for change, that power for transformation, it finds its satisfaction where? In Jesus. Because that's the only place you're gonna find that satisfaction. You can see this in your notes, that we pursue those who have strayed by demonstrating a transformed life in a secure faith. We can pursue those who have strayed by demonstrating a transformed life in a secure faith. Think about this, the people that at the beginning of this series, you wrote their names down. You said, man, these are the people that have strayed from their faith in my life and my heart breaks for them. I grieve that they have left their faith. What if they looked at you and they saw somebody who wasn't itching towards other teachings, 
who wasn't looking to find satisfaction anywhere but Jesus. But they looked at you and saw, not only are you super confident that Jesus is enough for you and you don't need anything else, but he has secured that approval, but that he also offers the only real satisfaction you've ever found. And they look at you and they see that your life has changed that you're, there are actual changes to your behavior. This is why we talk testimonies. This is, why, this is why these are so powerful in our faith is because this actual change that God brings to our life reminds us all over again that man, we belong to a powerful king who has made us his kids and that changes the way that we live forever. And if they would look at us and not see such insecure, unconfident people that man, I don't know if Jesus is enough, but man, I'm confident that he is enough for me and I'm actually seeing change. I'm not perfect, but my life is changing. If they saw that, that's why they left in the first place is they were looking for it somewhere else. If they saw that in you and in me, imagine the testimony that that would be to people who had left their faith. You see, I think a great opportunity sits before us as we have been focusing not just on pursuing people who have left their faith, but fortifying our own faith, protecting our faith. As you lean into that process, I actually think that's going to help your pursuit of people who have strayed because they are going to see in your life something legit that pulls them in to say, where did you get that? Because I want some of that. Because I think what we've realized in this series is that people who leave their faith, man, they're not super villains. They're people who were looking for probably some good stuff in the wrong place. And so if we start looking for good stuff in the right place, that is the best testimony to people who have left their faith. To see, man, I... I work with young adults. I'm, I'm in this age range of people who are leaving their faith in droves. And I have just seen time and time again, the reason keeps coming back to, I'm looking in other places for things that I have just become disillusioned with in Christ. So let's show them a church that is so confident, so secure that God is enough and that we're actually seeing change. And one of the things I'd encourage you towards is we've offered a ton of resources to you in this series. You've got whole YouTube series on our YouTube channel to help you in your pursuit of people who have strayed. You've got books, you've got podcasts, you've got a ton of options. Man, as we close this series down, would it not just be like something for you to think about? But take one of those resources and start digging Maybe start at a growth track tomorrow, but take one of those resources that we're offering and start digging into your faith so that as you fortify the people who have strayed in your life, they might see something confident and something truly transformed in your life. Let me pray for you. God, we love you and we thank you that man, true satisfaction for all of our hunger, for all of our desire, can be found in you. As you correct us, you point us towards things that are good for us. And Lord, you remind us and quiet us by your love. 
Lord, we recognize we're, we're no better than anybody else who's walked away from their faith. Lord, we pray that, that our faith would be fortified and protected, that Lord, you would help us to lean into the regular rhythm of sustaining our faith. And Lord, that as you begin to change us, you begin to transform us and we start to see just this greater confidence in who we belong to and that you are enough. Lord, would that be so winsome? Would that be so compelling to people who have walked away because they didn't find what they were looking for? Lord, would we be walking, living, breathing testimonies that you are who you say you are and you're good for it? if you're here in this room today and you would say, man, as I, as I look over it, I just don't know that there's any relationship that I've actually even started with God. Can I say the beautiful thing is that Christ's sacrifice, which we've been talking about all night tonight, it's enough for you and it's sufficient and it works. And the way that you can bring it into your life, the way that you can accept it and let it begin to change your life is just this, to A, admit that you're a sinner in desperate need of a savior. B, to believe that Jesus is exclusively the way to be right with God through his perfect life and his death and resurrection for you and for me. And then C, to choose, to choose to put your faith in him to give your life's allegiance to him and live out the rest of your life for him as he transforms you day by day. Lord, we love you. Would you move powerfully in and through us uh, so that we might be a people that draw in people who have walked away from you. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray, amen.